This is They Create Worlds, episode 119, The Entire Video Game Industry, part 2. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Today we will continue our great and epic journey into the entire video game industry. Who knows what horrors lies before us, unless you've actually seen the live stream, in which case, well, you probably already know the horrors. Anyway, Alex, where did we leave off? When we left off, we were just talking about how both home video games and coin-operated video games, while they had experienced a very nice burst of popularity in the early and in the mid-1970s, were in a period where there were real questions about whether this was really sustainable overall. You have the ball and paddle games, which are very simple. You have the arcade games that are really based on fixed time increments and fairly predictable action, which is contrasted with pinball in the same locations that are more thrilling and unpredictable. You have the programmables coming in. I didn't really talk about that before, but it's, it's interesting to note, you do have the first programmables coming in, which at least gives you the opportunity in the home to switch between various games and to have more diverse experiences. Of course, Fairchild is the one that ends up pioneering that. Alpex Computer Corporation comes up with the technology. Fairchild gets in and does it for the same reason that the calculator companies got into dedicated stuff. Fairchild realizes they need to get into consumer electronics because Texas Instrument and National Semiconductor have both done so. They're too late to catch the calculator wave. So they come up with a particularly neat idea to get into consumer electronics. Can you guess what that particularly neat idea might have been, Jeff? Digital watches? Digital watches. That's right. Digital watches were the other great consumer electronics fad of the 1970s alongside calculators and video games. They went through a similar boom-bust. So they got into watches, then they got into video games with this Alpex system. And then, of course, Atari, independently of that, they're not influenced by Fairchild on this at all because they're thinking about the future of video games too. They come to the same idea. In both cases, it's driven by the fact that these LSI-dedicated consoles, you create a whole chip to play one or two games. Then when you want to do another game, you need a different chip and you have to go through that whole year-long R&D process again. It's nuts, and then it's a $100 system again, and that's nuts. If we're going to keep up with what's going on in the arcade with new games like Tank and Seawolf and Stunt Cycle and everything, we need to have swappability. We need to have programmability. We need a microprocessor and then a ROM cartridge. You've got the programmables coming in, too, But the real problem there is that they suffer from the same problem as CoinOp does. It's mostly boring. Programmables are very expensive. They're $150 to $200. To bring back our good friend, the inflation calculator, if in 1977 I am paying $199.99, then in 2020 I am paying $846 for a programmable system. Then the cartridges, initially the cartridges are $20 each. So let's plug that in. 
$80 a cartridge. People complain today about the $60 price point of boxed games. There's a great resistance amongst consumers generally to go above that $60 price point. Well, the price point was the equivalent of $80 in 1977 after you bought your $800 video game system, again, in terms of modern dollars. All of this, we have to remember, in the middle of a period of hyperinflation, the United States is just about to be plunged into a recession that is caused by various attempts to finally get this hyperinflation under control. This is a bad time to be expensive with very limited gameplay. The early programmables are very limited in their gameplay as well. There's an idea that games have to be kind of for the whole family. Game systems have to be for the whole family. That I think is driven by necessity. If you look at the marketing in this time period, both in terms of print advertising and in terms of television advertising, when television advertising was going on, there is a great emphasis on the whole family being involved in some way or another. And not just mom, dad, and little Johnny and little Susie, but some ads even show grandma or grandpa getting involved on the action. I think a lot of that is because it's such a big purchase that they feel that if they're going to get a consumer to do that, consumer has to feel like they're going to get value out of it outside of just a children's toy. There's a theme and a pattern to the early games of all the systems. It doesn't matter whether it's Fairchild, RCA, Atari, Mattel a little later on. It doesn't matter which company it is. There is a theme to the early games. There are arcade conversions, sometimes straight-up arcade conversions if it's a company like Atari that owns the rights to the coin-op game, or Bally with their Astrocade if they own the rights. Sometimes it's just arcade similar. This is to try to capture some of the teenage crowd and also capture the younger crowd because home video games are a real valuable entree to children because, as I said before, the shopping mall arcade, such as it exists, is a teenage space. It's not a young child space, but younger children often want to emulate their brothers and sisters. That's psychology. There is value to bringing the arcade game into the home because the younger child wants to play the games, both because they're fun, but also because it's something that Big Brother gets to do and I don't get to do. You know, you've got the arcade games for the children and kind of the teenagers. But then there's the idea that you need traditional other kinds of games to kind of draw in the older audience. There's this idea that you need casino-style games, whether that be blackjack or whether that be roulette. In one particularly infamous case with Atari, whether that be a fruit machine, a slot machine simulator, there's this idea that you need something that draws in mom and dad or even grandma and grandpa and puts them on the system too. So you have these primitive board and card games that really aren't worth playing in that medium as opposed to playing them in real life. Much, much later with things like Microsoft Solitaire, obviously there is a transition to playing that kind of game on a computer and it makes sense. But with the graphical capability, the program capability, and the control interfaces of a 1970s video game machine, it just doesn't make sense. Then you have the educational game. Because you also need to give it a perceived value beyond entertainment because you're paying a lot of money for this. You always have the math games and the word games and all of this stuff to be like, hey, look, see, it can help little Johnny 
with his homework, too. Well, I mean, if we didn't have that, Alex, we wouldn't have typing of the dead. Everyone <laughs> wants to type words in order to kill the undead. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's different. I mean, we can't, we can't diss typing of the dead, man. I mean, there comes a point where this stuff works. And that's one of the cases where it does. Yeah, but it doesn't work in the 1970s. Remember, the arcade games themselves are very simplistic and predictable. The only thing that really makes those work is the novelty and the fact that you play them in short spurts. The early coin-op games, they do not translate well into the home. The educational stuff, nobody likes it. And I mean, even the people making them know nobody's going to like it. It's just justification. It's not just to justify for the parents to help reassure themselves, but you know, it's the way for dad to reassure mom that, oh, yeah, we'll definitely use this to help with the homework, too. Aside, I know I'm using kind of traditional family roles, but remember, we are talking about this in the context of the 1970s. So I'm using these traditional family roles because of the context of the times only and not because of what I think family roles should be or whatever. The educational stuff's rubbish. And the board and card games and casino games are pretty much rubbish, too, because even though there is a place for that in electronic entertainment, there is not the sophistication and the capability to make that interesting on these systems. So home systems cost a lot of money, and they don't really have a lot of entertainment value compared to the amount of money you're spending. Then their sales are hurt, as I said, by the collapse of the Pong market. But because the Pong market collapsed so suddenly retailers don't want to stock the programmables. So there is a level of consumer interest, a certain level of consumer interest in programmables, but the retailers are not willing to stock up to that level of consumer interest, even if it's modest consumer interest, because they're scared to death. They were already caught with all the Pong systems, and they took enough of a bath on that. Now you're talking about something that's 50 to 100% more expensive than these things, and you want me to take a bath on those too? We'll take 50, and if we could have sold 100 instead, who cares? We'll take the 50, because it's better to make the sales on 50 than to take the 100 and only sell 60 of them. Video games are kind of in a slump in the 1978 time period. It looks like it may have just been a passing fad, that they may have been the hula hoop of the 1970s. That is the environment that Space Invaders comes into. Space Invaders is such a complete paradigm shift. I mean, in this episode where we're trying to be broad, we don't want to spend too much time on individual games, but there are a couple of games that you have to. Even though we've done episodes on Space Invaders, even though it's in the Top 100 Influential Games episode, we have to take a moment here to talk about Japan and Space Invaders. Japan had a coin-operated game culture that was in some ways similar to the United States, but was in a lot of ways very different. Japan had just started embracing coin-operated entertainment in the 1930s. There were a limited number of machines on location. They tended to be handcrafted, custom-made machines, and the location for them tended to be department store rooftops because space is at a premium in Japan. It was a premium then. It's at a premium now. Rooftop garden areas is one of the places where that could fit. They had arcade-like experiences similar to the arcade experiences that the United States had in the Penny Arcade era, just a decade or so before that, on the rooftops of department stores. They also had the whole pachinko thing, obviously, even though it intersects with coin-operated amusements in the same way slot machines in the United States do. It's separate enough that we have so little time and so much to cover. Don't make me do pachinko. For our purposes, there's a limited industry that is just starting to get going, 
than World War II, uh, which remember from a Japanese context, they invade Manchuria in 1931. A period of relative peace after that, and then their war with China from 1937. What would be considered World War II in in Asia, which I think that period is sometimes called the Second Sino-Japanese War, to contrast it with the Sino-Japanese War in the 1890s, is starting earlier than what we would conceive of it as in the West. By the late 1930s, they are just getting rid of all of this kind of entertainment. Japanese culture is a very communal culture. It's a culture that's very focused on getting things done together, and it's culture that is, quite frankly, focused on focus. Amusements like that are seen as a distraction and an evil as Japan is attempting to expand its nascent empire at the expense of its neighbors. So they close the pachinko parlors, they close the rooftop amusement spaces, they ban the production of amusements— even before the war gets serious. I mean, in the United States, coin-operated amusements fall by the wayside, too, when wartime manufacturing turns entirely to war supplies. But they didn't close the arcades. In fact, arcades expanded in the United States during the war because arcades were popping up around all the new military camps and military bases that sprang up to support our war effort. They had to use old games and refurbished games because there was nothing new coming out, but arcades grew in the war. Well, in Japan, they disappear in the war because it's seen as a bad distraction. Then, of course, all of the major cities of Japan are completely devastated by firebombings and other allied attacks. That kind of destroys that infrastructure entirely. Amusements come back into Japan after the war only slowly, and they come in at first through Americans and Russians and Lithuanians and all sorts of people like that. In fact, here's a little trivia thing that has nothing to do with anything. This is a 100% tangent. The uh, longtime CEO of Sega, Hayao Nakayama, and the, for some period of time, President of the United States, Bill Clinton, have something in common. There were a lot of Russians and Lithuanians and Ukrainians and whatnot, Jews, in Japanese territory in this time period. Again, this is because uh, during the Russian Revolution, Jews were kind of more aligned with the white Russian side, and it was the red Russian side, of course, that was winning everything. I mean, there were Jews on both sides, but there were a lot of Jewish communities that were on the white Russian side, and they fled to Manchuria because Manchuria is on the border with Russia out there. And then the Japanese occupied Manchuria in 1931. Then the Japanese inherited a Jewish minority in that manner. Actually, for a time, uh, we're going to try to harness their Jewish minority because there were some junior officers within the Japanese military establishment that believed the uh, international Jewish conspiracy theories that were very prevalent at the time and are still, sadly, to a large degree prevalent today about how the Jews have taken complete control of world finance and world media and that they truly control the world behind the scenes. Some of these junior Japanese officers thought to themselves, well, if the Jews are so good at all of this stuff, we should use the Jews, too. It never became national policy because higher-ups weren't as sold on that, and then, of course, they aligned with the Axis powers, and while they were not participatory in the Holocaust, which, you know, was more of a European affair, because of their Axis ties, they also couldn't necessarily take a particularly progressive stance with their Jewish population either. Anyway, there were were a lot of Jews from Russia, Ukraine, Lithuania, etc. in Russia, and a lot uh, in Japan or Japanese colonies. Several of these Russian individuals became entrepreneurs after the war. Because of the Jewish diaspora and because there are 
Jewish communities all over the world, import-export businesses have always been something that Jews have been good at. And that's that's not a racial thing or anything. That's just the reality of if you have a diaspora, it's easier to have contacts all over the world. And if you have contacts all over the world, then it's relatively easier to start an import-export business. Of course, Taito was founded by Mike Kogan. That was an import-export business that later became a prominent video game company. Service games and Rosen Enterprises that merged to become Sega. Those are both controlled by Jewish Americans. There was a company called V&V Hi-Fi Trading Company, which was founded by the Valinsky brothers, Samuel Valinsky being the elder brother. They were Lithuanian Jews. They were involved in the jukebox business as well. The jukebox business in Japan in these days was basically entirely controlled by Jewish entrepreneurs. Hayao Nakayama, the longtime CEO of Sega, got his start in the coin-op business with V&V Hi-Fi Trading because basically his parents wanted him to be a doctor and he didn't want to be a doctor. And so his parents were like, that's fine. You don't have to be a doctor. Oh, by the way, we're no longer paying for your education. Goodbye. So he needed a job fast and he, he got in with these people. Well, Samuel Valinsky had a daughter. That daughter immigrated to the United States. That daughter married a gentleman by the last name of Lewinsky. They had a daughter by the name of Monica. Hmm. So there you go. Six degrees of separation from Bill Clinton to uh, Hayao Nakayama via Monica Lewinsky. Oh, my. That has nothing to do with the topic of today. You know, just a little Easter egg there. <laughs> Bonus info. All about that. You have this phenomenon of these Russian entrepreneurs Russian Jewish entrepreneurs and Lithuanian Jewish, Ukrainian Jewish, and American entrepreneurs that also happen to be Jewish, who are bringing in coin-operated product primarily to serve the American servicemen that's there. Because in 1949, Republican China falls to the communist forces of Mao Zedong. China had kind of been our ally in the East against the spread of communism, but it is gobbled up by communism. Then, of course, you have the divided Korean Peninsula, which was divided at the end of World War II between the Soviets and the Western allies. You have that Korean War invasion. Well, now you need Japan. Japan was an occupied power, uh, just as Germany was an occupied power. And in both cases, we end up deciding, uh, the United States, I should say, ends up deciding that we've got to bulk up these countries, help them redevelop themselves, and turn them into very strong bulwarks against these communist threats. So with the Korean War, Japan becomes a very important military hub for the United States. Of course, it still is to this day, which is uh, somewhat controversial in Japan. So you've got a massive influx of servicemen. I mean, you already had an occupying force there even before that, but they were an occupying force. Now you have a force that looks like it's going to be a more permanent force than that occupying force was going to be. You have permanent military bases being established. These American servicemen need entertainment. They need lots of things, but one of them is entertainment. People like Mike Kogan with Taito and the service games people start bringing in jukeboxes. They start bringing in coin-operated amusements. It starts to permeate again on military bases. And then as the economy picks up in Japan, it starts spreading out into Japan as well. Coin-operated amusements are really taken to by the Japanese very swiftly, you know, Part of that is it was a good redirection for things that were no longer legal or were no longer as easy to do. Gun games, shooting games were very popular in Japan. 
That's because this was a period of time when the Japanese were really cracking down, not even on full-blown martial weapons, but even on more quote-unquote harmless, when are guns ever harmless, but we'll put that in quotes, harmless guns like air rifles, which you know, in other parts of the world are considered appropriate, uh, you know, for, for teenagers to play around with even. Japan was basically outlawing all these forms of guns. So when the target shooting games started coming in from the United States, brought in by these entrepreneurs, particularly by David Rosen and Mike Kogan, Rosen Enterprises and Taito, the shooting games were very popular. Driving games were very popular. Pinball was somewhat popular. Pachinko overshadows pinball a little bit, of course. In fact, it's confusing when you look at old accounts of Japanese coin-up stuff, too, because they usually called pinball machines flipper tables, and they called pachinko pinball, because, of course, pachinko's derived from pinball, too, and there's pins, and I got to stop now because I said I wasn't going to talk about pachinko. (laughs) (laughs) So pinball is popular as well, but it takes a little bit of a backseat because of the pachinko phenomenon. You've got the games culture building up, You have the games spreading. The nice thing about Japan is it's very compact. So you have a a game center culture that starts to develop primarily in the cities, primarily in Tokyo and Osaka. You have a society that is becoming more able to have leisure time again. And you're having a society where children are particularly valued. Children have always been particularly valued in Asian culture, but there's a particular emphasis on doting on children just because of all of the hardship that Japan had been under for so long. There is a rising leisure culture centered around children in Japan. In Asian culture, you're kind of supposed to grow up at a certain point and not do all of those fun things anymore. There is more of a children focus, though certainly with the right fad, salarymen get involved in in what's going on as well. There's a vibrant youth culture that's developing, and coin-operated amusements are finding their ways into the places where this vibrant youth culture congregates. Bowling becomes a huge fad for a while. Bowling alleys are hosting these games. Movie theaters have gun corners. Any retail space tends to start having it. There's a big retail boom in the late 1960s in Japan, where department stores and supermarkets and other kind of modern retail spaces are rapidly developing, and they tend to have gun corners. There's this vibrant culture that's coming together. Video games becomes a part of that, but it becomes a part of it very slowly. The early video output, you know, Pong makes it over there, Taito imports it, Sega copies it, but it's not as big there. Kind of the point that it hits is it hits with Breakout in 1976. We did a whole episode on that, so, you know, we'll try not to go into too much detail on that. I think the single-player nature of it helped. There's kind of a shyness involved with competition in Japanese game centers. Street Fighter II, for instance. Street Fighter II was not very successful at first because you play side-by-side with each other, and there was a great deal of discomfort about doing the side-by-side playing. So what game centers started doing, and they started doing this on their own, it didn't start as an official mod from Capcom. What Game Center started doing is modifying it so that they would wire two cabinets together back to back so that each person would be sitting at their own station and wouldn't have to see each other while they were playing. That's when the game really picked up. I think there was some probably stigma with that 
aspect of it that made it less vibrant or viable at first, and that's something that Breakout solved. It's got that Pong-style gameplay, but now you can play it alone. That helped Breakout become a catalyst. The other major catalyst that helped video games reach a whole new level in Japan was the arrival of karaoke on a grand scale. Because you have to remember, all of these companies started in jukeboxes, and they were big in jukeboxes. Taito was big in jukeboxes. Sega was humongous in jukeboxes. They were distributing the American companies. Taito had Seaberg. Sega had Rockola, you know, two of the, the major jukebox companies in the United States. They really relied on the jukebox as kind of their bread and butter, even as they were doing this Game Center stuff, this arcade stuff, as well. Karaoke is death on the jukebox. There's a lot of things that are killing jukeboxes in this period. Jukeboxes are dying in the United States, too, because of piped music, uh, centralized sound systems. Karaoke is really the death to the jukebox. So a company like Taito or Sega has to be like, we're losing the bar market. We're losing the coffeehouse market. Coffee houses are big in Japan, particularly amongst young people in this period. How do we get them back? The answer is a tabletop game system. Now, this had been tried in the U.S. as well. It had been tried in high-end cocktail lounges in the United States, and it had briefly been successful, but it had fallen apart. The reason that you need a table in a situation like this is even if you're only holding one or two games, even if you're a location with only one or two games, games are distracting elements. It's fine in a bar, in a more rowdy, raucous bar that's noisy and crowded anyway. It's not really changing the nature of your clientele. If you're a place that sees itself as high class or more sophisticated, a place for fancy mixed drinks and quiet conversation instead of a beer bar, you don't want the place to become too raucous because it spoils the atmosphere that your people are looking for. Games, by their nature, lead to raucousness. They're noisy, people are playing them, they're banging on the cabinets, they're cursing because they miss something. It's a raucous thing. The fear of a location like this is that you put a couple of games in and you're going to have people clustering around the games being noisy, loud, rude. Your regular clientele isn't going to come into the establishment anymore. They're scared away by all this noise and stuff. These people that are here for the games, they're just here for the games. They're going to play a few rounds, maybe order a single drink and then leave. You're not going to replace the custom of your quiet contemplative clientele with your noisy game clientele. Again, some of this is stereotyping, but it's not always about the reality so much as it is about the perception of the reality of these business owners, and that's what these business owners see. The tabletop allows the games to be less intrusive. They don't really facilitate people crowding around because you'll just put a single chair, or if it's a two-player game, two chairs, by this machine. Other people aren't going to stand around looking down at it because that's just awkward. You can place them in amongst your regular tables. It's less obtrusive. People can place their drinks on top of them. So while they're playing games, they'll order the drinks. They move to the tabletop as a way to penetrate these locations. The popularity of Breakout and the move to tabletop happens simultaneously. Basically, this gets video games into coffee houses, into high class lounges, and it gets video games more enmeshed with the youthful culture of Japan. Not the youth culture, not that like. 12-year-olds are going to coffee houses. Even just, you know, the, the young go-getter kind of crowd is brought into this video game phenomenon right here with the release of Breakout. This is the beginning 
of the domestic Japanese industry as well, because Atari had tried to get into Japan. It was a mess. We have millions of episodes on that. It's not important. (laughs) They end up making the deal with Nakamura Manufacturing, which becomes Namco, to distribute their games. Namco brings Breakout into Japan. Namco cannot get enough breakouts from Atari to fill demand because it just blows up in a way that nobody was expecting. The other thing that's going on in this period is that there had been a real fad for what the Japanese call metal games, which is basically a gambling machine that is changed so that the payout is in metal tokens instead of in currency because slot machines and gambling are illegal in Japan. There's gray market gambling that obviously goes on where you take your pachinko ball if it's pachinko or your metal if it's a metal game and you leave the store and go around the corner to the completely unrelated business that will just happen to give you cash remuneration when you give them that ball for some unexplained reason. It's okay because it's not gambling, I promise. There's gray market stuff that goes on, but it's technically illegal. So they came up with this metal game thing, which is casino atmosphere without the money changing hands. All of the thrill, none of the profit. Some would argue that there's no thrill without the chance of a profit. The point is that caught on very well. That was one of the beginnings of game center culture of dedicated game centers that were not attached to a separate retail or entertainment establishment, like a supermarket or a movie theater. And that's why you always had to buy tokens in Dragon Quest to play at the casino. Yes, that's right. That's very much a reflection of the whole metal game thing, because metal games persist. They still persist in Japan. But there was a big boom in metal games in the mid-1970s. And then there was a drop-off because the police started looking more closely at all of that. There was a need for something to replace metal games in the game centers. There was a need to replace jukeboxes in the bars and coffee houses. Breakout came in at the right time to kind of replace all of that and keep the money machine going. Namco could not bring in enough to meet demand. This is basically when the entire domestic Japanese... (laughs) Coin-op industry comes into being because before this time, you basically just had Sega, Taito, and Namco in video. You had some others as well in Electromechanical, but those were the three in video. When it came to metal games, Konami's first game was a metal game. Irem, Data East, Universal, which is not the movie studio. All of these companies, their first product in video was a breakout clone. Many of them had been making metal games before that. Breakout was their transition to video. You've got the public's imagination captured by these blockbusting games. It's a genre. In in Japan, they call them orokuzushi, blockbusting games. Then you have the game mechanics, the clearing the screen thing, which it turns out is very satisfying. Then you have the microprocessor coming in from the United States. You have circuitry that is now becoming sophisticated enough that you can display more objects on the screen than just three or four objects. All of this comes into focus with Space Invaders. Space Invaders gameplay is inspired by Breakout. Space Invaders technology is directly lifted from the Gunfight and Seawolf games that Midway had done, that Jeff Fredrickson at Dave Nutting Associates had created a system to do a bitmapped screen that was more complicated than your simple ball and paddle games. The... Venues for a game like Space Invaders were primed by what had already happened in metal games and in blockbusting games. Even better, from the perspective of Space Invaders specifically, not for society generally, the oil shock had really messed up Japan. 
as a result of U.S. support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War, OPEC, the Arab oil-producing nations, decided that they would get together and really embargo the United States and its allies. There was a real big, serious, bad oil shortage in the Western world and uh, other allies like Japan. I mean, the U.S. was seriously affected by that, but at least the U.S. did have some domestic production, even if we weren't blowing holes all throughout Oklahoma with fracking to do it yet. Whereas a small island like Japan has no production. Japan was hit really hard. There was a real oil shock in Japan. This was very disastrous for the electronics industry in Japan. It was disastrous for many industries, but electronics was one of them. There was a huge backlog of electronic components, integrated circuits, circuits boards, monitors even, all of this stuff. So there was this real buildup of components. What tends to happen when something blows up big in electronics is that it takes the world by surprise and there's a massive shortage and supply never meets demand. Even in video games, this happened with Pong on a chip, with General Instrument being so surprised by the number of orders for their Pong on a chip that most companies didn't get what they wanted. It's a constant problem. When Space Invaders took off, which was really unexpected, nobody was expecting it, people thought it was too difficult, things shoot back at you. How dare they? Oh no, how could the enemy shoot back at me? That's not fun. Video games are predictable. You know you're getting 60 to 90 minutes of playtime. That's why people play them. You can't make them hard. You can't make them unpredictable. People will go away. Nope, I'm a gun. <laughs> play Blue Stark instead. You'll love it more. When it hit unexpectedly, normally that would mean that you would not be able to achieve true market saturation. But because there was such a backlog of electronic component due to the oil shock basically shutting down large portions of the electronics industry, everything was available. Suddenly, these component suppliers had someone they could sell to. Space Invaders took off big for a couple of reasons. It brought in the pinball element of lives and unpredictability into this medium of video game which had been stayed and predictable. It truly introduced the concept of high score, which again created a challenge element similar to two-player pinball. Seawolf had had a high score capability in it in 76. It was resettable by the player. There was a button right on the front that was meant to reset the high score because clearly what the devs of that game thought was that players might want to see if they could beat their own score. Play a game, okay, I got that score, let's see if I can beat that, put another quarter in. They weren't thinking about beating other players' scores. They were thinking that the next player wouldn't want someone else's score tainting their experience, so they'd press the button and reset it. They kind of blew that one. It kind of created this idea of high score culture. It was the beginning of it. It'll get even bigger. But there's this idea of a challenge to overcome. You've got excitement, thrills, spills, away with predictability, challenging goal to reach, even if the gameplay is a little monotonous. At least you've got a goal you're reaching for, which is trying to be the top scorer on the cabinet. And then they were able to saturate the market because there was an unusually high number of electronic components available and they could ramp up production very quickly. Space Invaders just blankets Japan. It's ridiculous. Hundreds of thousands of them. And remember, Japan is a relatively small, compact place. 
selling 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 units of an arcade game in the United States would be a fantastic, amazing achievement because it's a hit beyond imagining. Those games are spread out across a really big geographic area. These 300,000, 200,000, 300,000 Space Invaders cabinets and clones of Space Invaders are all concentrated on an island chain that's, I, I guess, about the size of California. The populated, densely populated areas of it are even more compacted. You must not have been able to walk 10 feet in Tokyo without seeing 50 Space Invaders cabinets. I mean, it's insane. It captured the imagination. Again, I think the cheap price probably played a role because the lingering effects of the oil shock were still being felt at that time, even though the oil shock was a a couple of years in the past at that point. I think the fact that it's cheap entertainment helped. Certainly the fact that games in Japan were already in all of the places that people were congregating anyway helped. And of course, Japan just being a more communal culture helped. It's the reason why game centers still kind of work in Japan today, even if they're not as big a deal even there as they used to be. Because you still have high volume foot traffic. You still have people mingling out and about. We're not walled off in our little separate communities and using our automobiles to get everywhere like in the United States. Space Invaders just blankets in an unprecedented way. And then, of course, it hits the United States and it blankets the United States in an unprecedented way. Though in this case, unprecedented means between 60 and 70,000 cabinets instead of hundreds of thousands. It still blankets that market in a way that never has been before. And it finally pushes pinball out of the way. Here is something with all of the excitement of pinball, but in a sophisticated TV package, and you can compete for high scores. It begins the process of sweeping pinball aside. It gets video games into coin-op venues like convenience stores that had not previously really been focused on video games as opposed to pinball, and it captures the imagination of the public. Again, it's a period of recession in the United States. It's a time period where I think cheap entertainment is valuable. It's a time period where youth culture in the United States, teenage culture in the United States, is congregating around the same areas. There's the push into shopping malls. They're in shopping malls. The movie theater is nearby. It's in the movie theater. If you're going out on a date, maybe you're doing dinner in a movie with your significant other, but maybe also you're taking a stop into the arcade. There's just an entire youth culture that's able to coalesce around this cheap, exciting form of entertainment that happens to be in all the same places that we're hanging out anyway. So that's the beginning of this takeoff. You can't discount asteroids in this as well, though, Atari's response to Space Invaders. Because Space Invaders was faddish in the same way that Pong was faddish. Pong captured the imagination for a short period of time because it was new and exciting. Space Invaders was doing the same thing. That was no guarantee that things were going to continue at that high level. In fact, we got a preview of this in Japan because in the middle of 1979, the Japanese trade organization that was responsible for amusements, this wasn't JAMA yet, this was the Japanese Amusement Association, which uh, was a precursor to JAMA. The JAA ended up cracking down on game centers because the quick spread of that game and the quick deposit of 100 yen coins into machines, there were so many coins put in the machines that they were having trouble keeping 100 yen coins in circulation. There's some urban 
legend, urban myth status to that story, but it's, it's rooted in truth that the turnaround of trying to get 100 yen coins out of machines and back into circulation was a real challenge, that there was a backlash against game centers. Because you have to understand, game centers were 24-hour facilities in Japan in this time period. There was this thought that kids were being hooked into this Space Invaders thing, and they would go to the arcade and they would never leave because they could be there all hours. There was a real thought that there might be government regulation of the industry if they didn't strike first. So they regulated the industry by limiting minors so that you couldn't be in them at all under the age of 15 without parental accompaniment, and you couldn't be in them after a certain time of day if you were under 18. They worked with the Japanese National Police to enforce this, even though it wasn't a law. The police helped them enforce it with essentially the same force as a law. That cut the Space Invaders' craze, the invader boom, as it was called. It just cut it off at the knees. Obviously, video games didn't die in Japan. Galaxian came along, Head-On came along, and things spun forward. The same thing could happen in the United States, where it would stop suddenly. When Atari brought in Asteroids, which was another space shooter, but was a different kind of space shooter, free-roaming around the screen, blowing up asteroids and the great vector graphics and all of that, it showed that this was more than a one-trick pony. You could have a hit followed by another hit followed by another hit, and people would come back. Of course, Asteroids also popularized the high-score table. Starfire from Exidy did it first, but Asteroids was the first major hit that had the high-score table. That allowed score-chasing culture to hit a kind of new level. That's kind of the golden age in a nutshell, the so-called golden age of arcade games. We won't spend time on it because, God, we can't. (laughs) Suffice it to say, this was a culture that was very centered on the arcade, which was often very centered in the shopping mall. It was very centered on teenage culture. It was very centered on competitive culture, not that everybody that was going to the arcade was going there to try to be the best that ever was. It did facilitate, there was a certain pride that you could take in having a high score. You knew where you stood amongst your peers, and there were definitely elite players that went around to every arcade that they could get to within walking distance or biking distance or however they were getting around so that they could get their high scores on every single one of those machines. That kind of competition, it kept the games in the public imagination. Local newspapers would even cover particularly impressive scores. The score-chasing culture kept the video games in the public imagination and gave an impetus to continuing to play these games and gave them a freshness that continued to last even after some of the gameplay elements maybe started to become repetitive. We're still talking about relatively primitive microprocessors, relatively primitive capability to have a variety of gameplay. Limited memory, I mean, I think is, is really the biggest thing because memory is expensive. Memory is always expensive. Of course, this bleeds into the home then, because what's going on in the arcade can translate better into the home now, because with the score-chasing mentality, with the idea that I'm going to be playing over and over and over again to refine my skills, that's a lot of quarters. Now, the idea of taking a coin-operated game and converting it to a home game, that takes on a new level of interest a new level of sophistication, because even though those games can't match the experience of the arcade in any way, some of the skills that you learn doing it this way can apply to the arcade, or 
if you love a game so much, but you can't play it anymore because you're just out of quarters, you can run home and play it. And even if it's not as good an experience, it kind of scratches that itch. Plus, of course, there's the thing that I was already talking about where younger siblings want to emulate older siblings and younger kids want to emulate older kids. The younger kids are learning about all this arcade thing going on. And they can't necessarily go to one themselves until Nolan Bushnell comes along with Chuck E. Cheese. They're excited at this idea of having the games in the home, and they're less discerning when it comes to the audiovisual quality. Space Invaders becomes the killer app of the arcade, the coin-op. It becomes the killer app of the home as well, and it launches the Atari to a new heights that no one else is really able to reach. That's good, because... What the home market had been trying to do before that was it was trying to position itself as the new wave in home computing. This is kind of an interesting, it's not a tangent because this moves directly into our next topic, but it's an interesting little speed bump in the road of video games that happened when the first microcomputers were coming out. There was this thought throughout this period, and it rises and falls in intensity, that video games were going to be very quickly eclipsed by computers once computers got into the home because computers can play all the games and balance your checkbook too. The wife can store her recipes in them because I don't know why. All the men in charge of these companies at the time thought that's what the wife was going to do. So whatever. You know, there, there was this idea that it was going to take over. So if you look at the late 70s, the first wave was Fairchild RCA Atari. Of course, RCA, it's a long story, but I mean, the, the creator of the RCA Studio 2 had really wanted to get into the computing market, the kind of cheap educational computing market, but kind of settled for video games. But these early systems were video game players. They were like the early dedicated consoles, except you could switch out cartridges and play a few more things. The next wave is very different. Valley Astrocade. It's kind of a console computer hybrid right out of the box. It's somewhat limited in its computer functionality. They keep promising expansions that never come out. It's marketed as a console computer hybrid. The Odyssey 2, it's not really marketed as a console computer hybrid because it's not a powerful enough system, but it has a keyboard and it is positioned as a trainer. It's like, look at this. It's educational. You can get comfortable with using a keyboard and doing computing like things. Then later, they will graduate to real computers. Real computers? With their own keys and credit cards and little elves with pointy teeth? Wait a minute. What was that last one? But uh, <laughs> then uh, APF, which is a company that's not well known today, but they were one of these uh, electronics importers that got into video games. They had done a programmable system, but then they created a docking station for that system called the Imagination Machine that turned it into a full-fledged computer. Mattel in the very beginning, was positioning the Intellivision as a step to a computer because all of their early advertising before they went all George Plimpton on us was all about you can buy this base system, then you can buy the keyboard component, which is absolutely coming immediately, we promise you. Please don't find us, FTC. Then you're going to have an introductory computer. They really focused on the computer aspect. It's very clear just looking at the advertising, looking at the marketing during this period of time, that everybody thought that we were going computer. Atari, they were creating their next generation video game system. Then they decided that they would make two versions of it, one a computer, one a video game system. 
Then they went completely crazy and decided that they'd both be computers, a low-cost entry-level system and a high-cost sophisticated system, the 400 and 800. There was a real thought that computers were coming, computers were here, and computers were the future of this entertainment. That's a great opportunity for us to go back and kind of look at how the computer game industry is being born in the same time period. There's a real shift into this idea of computers. The microcomputer, of course, it comes about through a convoluted path. You go from mainframes to minis. You go from minis to time-sharing. Time-sharing is kind of the vehicle where personal computing, as we know it, really starts to be established. Time-sharing, of course, is the concept that you have a big, powerful computer, sometimes a full-fledged mainframe, sometimes just a mini, depending on what's going on. You have terminals that are tied into that, and the computer takes a microsecond to do your thing, a microsecond to your thing, a microsecond to your thing, and constantly flips between all of the users and gives each one the illusion that they're the only ones using the machine at the time. They just think they have a really long wait for the computer to work on their program, but really their computer would have been done with their program five minutes ago if it didn't have these other 500 people also clamoring for its attention. You really don't start getting a computer gaming culture, space war aside, until you get time sharing. Time sharing opens up computer use to a larger base. At first, they're still largely people that are at research institutions or at colleges. Once Kimini and Kurtz get their hands on the concept of time sharing and decide that computer use is in the future for everybody, they, of course, create the basic programming language. We did a whole episode on this, so we won't dwell. They create the basic programming language. They encourage programming in a wide variety of environments. They encourage learning programming as a tool that will be needed in everyday life in the future. They start really focusing on getting into schools, high schools, even middle schools, junior highs. In the 60s, this starts in 1964, in the 60s you get a slowly spreading group of computer networks. The Dartmouth timesharing system is one that's connecting a lot of people in New England. Then you get the entire state of Minnesota going in on a timesharing system. The University of Oregon gets a pretty big timesharing system going in the Northwest. Dartmouth partners with GE to get timesharing started. Then GE starts commercializing timesharing. They start doing timesharing services for businesses that can't really afford to be part of a network full-time. Then there are spinoffs from GE, so you get little timesharing centers all across the country that are connecting more people with computing. Then the many computer companies see what's going on with all of these institutional mainframe kind of stuff, like General Electric getting involved, and they're like, wait a minute, you've got these massive, for the time, timesharing networks. You've got schools and businesses that are calling long distance and doing all of this to get into a network because they can't afford a computer close to their home. If we give them many computers, they can probably afford to buy a mini computer. Then they can timeshare that locally amongst a small number of organizations so you're not bringing in enough traffic that it's going to seriously tax the mini computer. We can capture this business. Then you get both DEC and Hewlett-Packard, which by this time has become a big mini-computer company. You get both of them repackaging their mini-computers as time-sharing hubs. 
that enables the spread even more. It's a relatively small percentage of the overall population of the United States that is experiencing time sharing and is experiencing computing in this time period. The important thing is that if you are a high school or college student with a significant enough level of affluence, unfortunately, we are talking about a lot of this happening in either wealthier public school districts or fancy private schools, with certain exceptions, of course, like Minnesota managing to network the entire state. So you are talking about a relatively small portion of the population, proportion of the population that is largely middle class or higher and white you are getting this computing introduction in the schools, and this is critical to the birth of the computer game industry. If you look at a lot of the early people involved, a lot of them talk about how they first were able to do computing in their school. Sometimes that's college in the case of, say, the wizardry people who were exposed to Plato. In some cases, it's high school. Richard Garriott was exposed to computing in high school. It's because of these time-sharing networks. Bill Gates, of course, was exposed to computing in high school because his preparatory school got a time-shared teletype that was hooked into a computer. This is the training ground for personal computer use. This is where the first wave of people are able to gain access to a computer. This is, quite frankly, where the hunger for computers comes from, I think, in large degree, with the first wave of adopters of microcomputers. Because using these time-sharing systems got you access to a computer, but you had no sense of ownership over that computer. You only got to use your terminal for whatever amount of time. Sometimes your ability to save a program was very limited. You may not have space to save on the computer itself. Maybe you can make a paper tape copy. You can fiddle around to a degree, but unless you're doing something really official, you can't necessarily fully own that system to do your own experimenting. For a lot of people, time-sharing, I think, was fine. Time-sharing was a way to interact with computers and learn about computers, and that was good. For the people that go really in-depth, there was a desire to have complete ownership of that process, even if that meant that you technically had something less powerful overall. If you look at do-it-yourself electronics magazines in this time period, which is where a lot of this early microcomputer stuff comes from, You'll notice that there were terminals being offered in this time period. There was an interest in terminals as something to do it yourself and interact with these mainframes, but the community wasn't satisfied by those. They really wanted that complete ownership. So even though time-sharing was personal computing, it wasn't enough personal computing for a certain segment of the population. Even though this was a niche portion of the population, Through fanzines, they're able to stay connected with each other, and they start turning towards home computer projects, and that's how you get something like the Altair and some of the other early systems like the Sol 20 or the Sphere. You have these little pockets. They're from all over the country. There's New Mexico, Utah, Kentucky, Atlanta, Silicon Valley, of course, because why wouldn't there be? You have these little pockets where these computer companies spring up and are doing these hobbyist kits because, of course, it's a semi-national movement because they're all connected by the do-it-yourself hobbyist magazines. This is never going to be a mass market thing, 
this level is so primitive, you have to really love hardware. You have to really love a soldering iron to get involved. It's kind of one of those things where you need those early adopters to prove the viability to everyone else and to straighten out the kinks and to produce what's going to make it more accessible. The first wave of these hackers is very hardware-focused. Then you get a second wave of hackers that are very software-focused after the hardware becomes more commoditized. Then you have a general public that is able to take the software that was created by the software hacker and then run it themselves and have some success with a computer, though there's still some technical hurdles in those early days when interfaces are not very great. Because these early computers are so limited, it was inevitable that games would be a part of it from the very beginning. Because there's only so much you can do with the computer. There are attempts at early word processors and early this and early that. But games are something that you can get up and running very easily, get up and running very quickly. It's also something that's going to impress someone else more if you're trying to convince them that this new thing that you just spent a ridiculous amount of money on is actually able to do something. It's like if you show them a very primitive word processor, it's like, well, I can get on my typewriter and it's just as easy. If you show them a game, if you show them Lunar Lander, it's like, oh, well, that's not something I can do on a typewriter. That's not something I can do with other things that I have. Games are naturally going to become part of this culture. And of course, time-sharing systems already had a vibrant game culture on them. That largely had to do with schools, people like Minnie and Kurtz, and then translated on to the schools that were interacting with it afterwards, realizing that in order to get students excited about programming, you want them to be able to do things that they're going to have fun with. And it makes sense to nurture at least a certain amount of game creation and gameplay. Obviously, I'm not talking about the Play-Doh system, which came up in stream earlier, because that was for very serious educational things. But that is why the administrators always deleted everything, all the games at the end of the day. Very important there. Exactly. In a high school setting, as long as they're programming and as long as they're learning, it's okay sometimes to be a little lax on that. These early mainframe classics appear in this period. High school student Jim Storer creates the first Lunar Lander game. Oregon Trail is created by student teachers up in Minnesota. You have Hammurabi, which started as a computer-assisted instruction program and then spread from there. You have these games spreading because there's a real movement building around the idea of computing. Computing has gone through a lot of different images over time. The image of computing has changed a lot over time. There was certainly a period where it seemed all futuristic and shiny and happy. Then there was a period where it was all about the military-industrial complex and computers were calculating kill ratios in Vietnam. Computers were bad and you should feel bad. So a lot of the counterculture movement in the mid-60s was about turning against computers. Computer labs were very insular places where if you were part of that computer culture, you were part of that computer culture, and if you weren't part of it, you could never understand it. There started to be a shift as the 60s turned to the 70s where there's still that counterculture distrust of computers in some circles, but there's also this idea now that time-sharing is spreading and now that computing is moving out of the lab that computers could also be something that set people free. 
there's a twist of computers moving into education and computer-assisted instruction and time-sharing in the schools that leads to this idea that maybe a computer can be a tool to help break free from the lies of the man and learn what's really going on in the world. Again, I'm not making a personal political statement or anything, but just explaining where the counterculture is going at this time. So you get a small subset of intellectuals within the broader counterculture movement that become obsessed with the idea of making computing accessible and available and free to all. You get national newsletters like the People's Computer Company, which are dedicated to spreading news of what's going on in computing and this revolution that's happening, this idea that you can create and you can learn and you can set yourself free through information technology. You get sharing networks of these early games. They're type-in listings in newsletters and magazines. You have David All, of course, who is big on computers and education. He's not so much counterculture as Albrecht is, but he's big on computers and education. He's gathering programs while he works at Digital Equipment Corporation to reprint and redisplay through his 101 Basic Computer Games book, mostly games, because again, it's about enticing people to use computers, getting people interested in computers so that they go deeper and learn more about computers and are ready for this brave new world. So you get programs that wouldn't normally spread that are spreading across the country and are familiar with two people across the country because of this educational movement, because of this counterculture movement, and because of this feeling of computers as revolutionary device, which is kind of an interesting twist on things. That's why we still know what Lunar Lander is. We still know what Hammurabi is. We still know these very early concepts. We still know what Hunt the Wumpus is. I think I brought up in our basics episode, it's just amazing just how many games actually survived. It makes you wonder how many games were actually lost because no one did care to actually write them down or preserve them in some way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's lost stuff as well. But, you know, it's amazing how much stuff permeated nationally. You did have the ARPANET at this point, but obviously it was limited to a small number of military industrial complex computers. I mean, you didn't have those kind of networks in this time period, but some of this stuff spread anyway. It was very technically focused, though, at first. You still had to have a certain level of adventuresome spirit or familiarity to do this. You had to solder your own hardware if you wanted a personal computer. You had to type in your own code listings if you were just interested in the software. This is why the Trinity represents an important point and a shift in what's going on in the computer space, because the arrival of Commodore PET TRS-80 Apple II even if their spread was relatively slow at first. What this did is it took the impetus away from hardware and allowed you to put the focus on software. There are a lot of people that were just not interested soldering their own computer together. I know I wasn't. Yeah, that were still interested having programming accessibility and running programming experiments. You needed this hardware to come out to kind of give permission to the broader market to transition into a software model. In this earlier period of time, you know, software was just something you created yourself and you traded amongst yourselves, and you made Bill Gates cry because nobody valued software. In this period of time, you have a new wave of people that do see the value in software, even though piracy is obviously never going to go away. 
so you can start placing value in software. It kind of starts organically. Obviously, the computer companies themselves put out a few simple programs for their computers. A lot of it is that people are creating their own programs. They're sending them into magazines as type-in listings. They're going to local computer clubs and trading them with their friends. They're swapping software around. Maybe they're occasionally buying something, but there's not much of that. Then you get a few entrepreneurs that decide, well, there's so much software out there. Let's start gathering this. Let's centralize this. And let's start getting it into computer stores and let's start selling it. That's where you get that first wave of computer game companies that we talked about in that episode on the early computer game industry, like Programma and Soft Tape, that are taking what at that point had been just a hobbyist interest in software and trading software and turning it to something commoditized. And again, once that happened, then you have another wave of entrepreneur programmers that come in and are like, well, I can make a game and I can sell a game because I've seen the computer games are in stores. So why don't I put something together, but I'll keep a hold of it. I'll just sell it myself. That process was a bit stop and go, but it really came down to computer stores expanding, computer store chains expanding, and distribution expanding. In the very early days, you basically had to call all sorts of individual stores in order to get your product on the store shelf. And that's why people naturally gravitated towards these aggregator companies like Soft Tape and Programma, who could do that part for them and they wouldn't have to worry about the sales. Well, before long, you have some of these companies starting to take on more of that burden themselves. So you have a company like Adventure International with Scott Adams, who is making his own games and selling his own games but also soliciting product and taking in product from other people. You have Ken Williams with Online Systems, who they've got their own game, Mystery House, that they're peddling, but they also start taking other people's stuff. In fact, Scott Adams gives them the distribution rights for the West Coast. So you have a second wave of entrepreneurial publishers that come in that are doing their own thing, drawing in a few things from other people as well, as that gets too big, they start splitting off that distribution element, and you get the rise of the first independent computer game distributors, like SoftCell, which was actually started when Ken Williams sold off his distribution to a couple of guys who founded what they called SoftCell. Which eventually led to Doom, right? Yes, sort of. Then you've got these entrepreneurial people like Doug Carlston with Broderbund or Ken Williams with Sierra that have been soliciting programs from other people and been involved in distributing that. Well, now they don't have to do the distributing anymore, but they're still very involved with the publishing. So you get this whole ecosystem that kind of falls into place through all of this, where you have independent authors who are often young and just fooling around learning how to work with a computer, who go out and program a couple of games, often based on the arcade games, coin-operated games that are active at the time because coin-op's big in youth culture and it's a good model for games. Then they're submitting them to these publishers that are no longer these early, we'll just take anything we find kind of publishers that you had like Programma, but are publishers that are run by people that are themselves in the game industry and a little more discerning. These people will pay you a royalty for the privilege of publishing your game and then they will work with the software distributor to get that game in the expanding realm of computer stores. Hopefully that wasn't too convoluted, but that's basically the early computer software industry morphs into this thing where you have 
independent authors, publishers paying royalties, and doing a small number of games in-house. Distributors, specialized computer stores doing the selling. That's kind of the system that we have going on here. And of course, we will go into all of these topics in other episodes, which I will, of course, link into the show notes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, of course, the other side of what's going on here is you do have the games that are kind of actiony inspired by the arcade. But especially in the early days, the computers were very limited. These microcomputers, the Commodore PET and the TRS-80, for instance, just had character-based graphics. The Apple II had a bitmap screen, but it didn't have independent sprites. It just had the bitmap. You could get higher resolution graphics on it, higher for the time, which is not higher today. But it took a lot of memory, and in the early days, the computers didn't have a lot of memory. So the early games, they're big, blocky sprites. They're pretty slow. They're pretty clunky. There's a natural move to a more cerebral or strategic kind of game on these systems as well, which is something that sets it apart from both the arcade and the home console, which is very fast action, very Twitch-based instead. You know, there's some natural places that are drawn from from that. And, of course, the wellspring of most of it is Dungeons & Dragons. The parallels between the early spread of role-playing games and the early spread of computer games are very striking. And there's a natural overlap in people here. Because role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games, grew out of tabletop war games. Tabletop war games and tabletop role-playing games both were very niche hobbies in this time period that relied on the same kind of networks of fanzines to connect people around the country and engage them. Also, because it was a niche hobby, there weren't that many products getting released. Because it was a niche hobby, rule sets were few and far between, so there was a natural desire by many people in the hobby to start taking what was out there and modifying it and creating their own rule sets on top of it particularly in the miniature side of wargaming. So just like you had an early network of hobbyists in computing that were exchanging information in magazines and fanzines, networking through regional conventions, regional computer fairs, taking it upon themselves to create product for their machines as much as anything because there wasn't any professional software out there, so they had to do it themselves. You had the same thing going on at the same time in wargaming, which leads to the birth of RPGs, because that's essentially what Gygax was doing to create Dungeons & Dragons, in collaboration with Dave Arneson, of course. It's how the RPG industry kind of evolved, too. They're both very systems-based. With the computer, it's about manipulating the computer to get it to do what you want. Engaging with that programming language, learning that language, learning that machine, and bending it to your will to create something. Being a tabletop game creator or even a dungeon master is pulling on a similar part of the brain, a similar part of the psyche, where you want to take a structure, you know, if you're a DM, then Dungeons & Dragons is your language that you're interpreting by creating an adventure that adheres to the rules of Dungeons & Dragons, that follows the rule of that language, you are creating an entertainment product that you have control over that you are then sharing with other people. It's no surprise that there would be a huge overlap in interest between the wargaming crowd, the RPG crowd, and the computer gaming crowd. 
So it should come as no surprise that as Dungeons and Dragons became more popular on college campuses, it kind of spread out from Gen Con, quite frankly, which is when it was first debuted publicly to a large audience. As it spread out from Gen Con and went back to local wargaming clubs, then the college-age students in those local wargaming clubs took it back to university, showed their friends at university, and got them hooked. You had a D&D culture that really kind of permeated in 1970s America. Even though D&D, with a wider audience, and I use the term wider audience loosely here, didn't really happen until the 1980s when all of the hysteria and publicity around the kids that were supposedly playing Dungeons and Dragons, Satan's game, and going off and killing themselves in steam tunnels. And even making an entire movie about it. Starring America's favorite everyman, Tom Hanks. Even though that wider permeation of the culture didn't happen until the 1980s, obviously then it was still niche, but it was still wider than the 1970s. There was a network of D&D players in college campuses. This network of D&D players lined up pretty well with the network of computer programmers. That Venn diagram has a lot of overlap in it. This is why D&D is one of the most important video games ever created, even though it's not a video game. So you have the desire to bring D&D in some way, shape, or form into the computer. That manifests in a couple of different ways. Of course, the most powerful one of those is Will Crother. D&D is hitting the nerdy set in colleges, but it's also hitting the nerdy set in computer labs. So Will Crowther at BBN, defense contractor, there's that military-industrial complex again. Will Crowther's helping to build the ARPANET. He's also part of a D&D group. He's also a caver. He likes exploring caves. So you take D&D, caving, and computers and put them all together, and you get adventure. You get the idea of, let's do something exploratory, like the cave exploration I enjoy so much. Let's put something gamified in there that's like the dungeon crawling and exploration that we do in D&D. Let's have puzzles. Let's have treasure. Let's have antagonists. Let's have something trying to prevent me from getting the treasure. Because, of course, early D&D is all about exploring dungeons, finding treasures, overcoming obstacles. You can't do an action game on the system, the timeshared system that Will Crothers working on, but you can play up the descriptive aspect, the exploration aspect, the puzzle-solving aspect of a dungeon crawl, even as you downplay the combat. Because I'm creating this game, because I want to have a connection with my daughters, who I'm losing connection with because I'm getting divorced, let's make the commands simple text commands instead, so that it's accessible to anybody. Of course, that's how you get Colossal Cave, or Advent, or Adventure, or all the other various names it's gone by as it's spread around. And oh, by the way, I'm on the ARPANET because I'm helping to build the ARPANET. So I might as well put this game on the ARPANET. So he does. He puts it on the ARPANET. He goes away on vacation. And that's, of course, when Don Woods discovers it on the literal other side of the country, Stanford, and is like, well, this is cool, but it could really have more treasures and more obstacles. And I really like J.R.R. Tolkien. Let's get the fantasy aspect really played up as well. There were fantasy elements in Crothers. So that's how you get the classic adventure. Because they're on the ARPANET, it spreads to everybody that has an ARPANET connection. So we're still talking about mostly institutionalized computing here, obviously, because your random Joe Schmo doesn't have an ARPANET connection. The lore goes that it just stops all production for two weeks. 
all productivity for two weeks is done because everyone's solving adventure. Even though that's a bit of an exaggeration, it really is true. It took that world by storm because it was a whole virtual world in a computer and nobody had really experienced that before. You had games, you'd played games, but they were in this set, constrained space, and now here's adventure in this big, huge space that you can explore. Even people that had never played D&D before were drawn in by the exploration and puzzle-solving aspects, because computer programmers are all about solving puzzles. Engineers are all about solving puzzles. That's what computer programming and engineering basically is, is here's the resources you have, here's the results you need, now build something that does that. It really hits that type of person dead on in the center of their interests. You get the text adventure. You get out of MIT. You get the uh, Laboratory for Computer Science there, people there collaborating on Zork. They create Zork just for their own fun and just to share with their own people on their timeshared network or on the ARPANET. Then the group wants to stay together after they get out of MIT. Computers are starting to permeate more broadly. The idea of a computer software industry and even a microcomputer software industry is viable now because we're in that third phase where you don't need to be a hacker and make your own program anymore. The people that are interested in making programs are now going to make them for you and you're going to pay them. Good old capitalism there. (laughs) We don't know what we want to do. We just know that we want to do computer programs. Oh, I guess we've created this sort of thing. We've created this game, so we might as well put the game in. We might as well do the game while we think of something more serious. See, everyone thought that they were going to eventually do something more serious. The games were the gateway. Broderboon released Bank Street Writer, a word processor. Muse Software was an early company. They released a word processor. Online Systems played around with some stuff that wasn't games. All of these companies thought that games were going to be a part of the business, that they were going to be computer game software companies. Well, it turned out that computer games were far and away the most popular programs. They're easier to make than business software. What I basically mean by that is, so if you screw something up and you have a bug and something glitches in this part of the game, whatever. I mean, it happened. We'll all get on with our lives. If you have a bug and a piece of database software that a business is planning to use to, like, keep track of important business things, and that bug causes that company to lose the business data, it's gone. That company's going to murder you and your family and salt the earth where your company used to be. You screw up a game, you just move on to the next game. You screw up a database and your name is mud forever. Not the good kind of mud that you play with your friends. The bad kind. It became readily apparent to these game creators, it's like we're making money hand over fist making games. Why are we trying to do this other stuff too? Let's just keep on it. And some of those companies then came back around... Later on, they were like, well, okay, we've been doing the games things for a while, and we've got a big capital base. Now let's take the next step. Of course, whether that was Mediagenic or Infocom, etc., that ended up being a disaster when they kind of circled back around to the idea again, which just proves the point even more that if you're good at games, you might as well just stick with games and let those other companies take care of the hard stuff. You get this early computer game culture. It's based around text adventures in large part because of that chain of events that we talked about and Infocom getting Zork out there. Those kinds of interactions with parsers kind of appealing to the type of person that's also an early adopter of computer technology. 
of course, D&D gets out there in in more literal form with more RPG-like products as well. Again, we're drawing from the earlier mainframe experience for this because you have Ultima and Wizardry. Ultima, even though it originated entirely on microcomputers, Richard Garriott, first exposed to timesharing and first started adapting D&D at school on timesharing systems, also with creating Akalabeth, the so-called Ultima Zero, in the 3D dungeons there. He was inspired by a 3D maze called Escape, created by Silas Warner, who cut his teeth on Play-Doh and knew what that 3D thing was all about because he was on Play-Doh. And then, of course, Wizardry, which we just talked about recently in our Surtech episode, which was there were all these dungeon crawls on the Play-Doh system because the Play-Doh system's sophisticated, can do these graphics and stuff. Let's take that, do it in Pascal, and put it on a microcomputer. Text adventures become big, RPGs become big, and action games become big in this early period because the arcade is still a big influence as well. So something like Choplifter from Broderbund is also very big. But there's definitely a sense that cerebral games and technical games and whatnot are more adept, are more suited, I should say, for these microcomputer platforms. So you've got that. You've got a home console market that is more and more predicated on arcade conversions, with a few exceptions here and there. You have an arcade market that is based on score chasing and fast action. The arcade market, of course, takes a turn during the same time period. It kind of takes a turn in a couple of different directions. There's a push and pull between making games more complex and making games more accessible. So you have both of these moves going on. The score chasing element requires that games get more and more complex. Once you've mastered Space Invaders, if you're an elite player, you can play for hours on a coin. Same with Asteroids, especially if you take advantage of certain bugs. Wait, there's bugs in Asteroids? Yeah. The score chasing crowd needs ever more complex, sophisticated games to keep themselves interested, to keep themselves engaged, to keep that competition going. That's how you get something like Defender, which is very complex by the standards of the time. But at the same time, you risk alienating a more casual population as your games get harder and harder. There was a sense that they could cut off part of the player base if that kept up, and that's kind of where Toru Iwatani comes in, and his idea that I've been in the game centers, I've seen who's in the game centers, at least in Japan, it tends to be just teenage boys, oftentimes harder-edged teenage boys. They have their stereotypes in Japan in terms of what the clientele of a game center is like, too, and it's often very negative. Very rarely are there women there, usually only if they're there with a boyfriend, and even then they may not be really all that engaged with what's going on. He felt that there was a real need to open up the coin-op experience. That's where you get Pac-Man, and of course we could go into the creation of Pac-Man. The big thing there is not so much about Pac-Man itself, which has a lot of big things. It's simple to control, which makes it accessible. It has patterns, which means that it creates a whole strategy guide industry. There's a lot you can say, but the big thing is that to make his game feel kind of more non-threatening and make his game feel more engaging, he goes with that kawaii aesthetic. Kawaii actually has an interesting history. It was actually very tied in with student protest movements and with counterculture in Japan. There's this idea that Japan has a very strict, very stern culture where everybody has their place and everyone should be serious and everyone should stay in their place. This kawaii aesthetic 
which is based around the idea of the Japanese conception of cuteness, is all about rebelling against those constraints of Japanese society. Being cute, the idea of exaggerated features, big eyes, blushing cheeks, colorful attire, is similar in a way to the hippie affectation that's, that's going on in the United States. Not that kawaii people are hippies, but just the idea that you're presenting yourself in a certain way as a rejection of the society that you find yourself in. The kawaii aesthetic was very popular with young people as much as anything because of this counterculture element to it. So he decides to use a kawaii aesthetic in Pac-Man. What that did is it allowed for more sophisticated and more interesting video game graphics at a time when the hardware couldn't support it very well. One of the kind of differences between Japan and the United States is that there does really seem to be this idea that in the United States we go for fidelity. We're going for lifelike representations in everything we do. Whereas in Japanese culture, which is a very visual culture going way back, this idea of representing things in a less realistic way is more accepted. So the Japanese and, and Iwatani get there first to the idea that it's okay to have deformed characters, unrealistically proportioned characters, colorful characters, ridiculous characters in your games. If that's all that your hardware can do reliably, then embrace that. Embrace that aesthetic in the game and do something more interesting with it. You know, obviously, some American developers start to imitate that once games like Pac-Man blow up so big. It almost kind of needed a Japanese mindset or that cultural mindset to actually get us there. It turns out that that makes video games more accessible, that that audiovisual style invites in a new, more casual clientele. It invites in a different set of people that aren't necessarily as addicted to the score chasing. It's what really allows coin-op to become one of the most prominent mass market entertainments in the United States, in Japan, in Europe. It really allows this to take off because you have, for the competitive people, you have the really intense score chasing stuff. For the people that are into it more for the aesthetic appeal and for engaging on it on a lighter level, you've got that kind of kawaii, cuter game. You can create a real mass market because there's something for everybody in there. That's really important to spreading things, but it's also going to lead to problems as well. Bringing this back to the home really fast, what does this spread in the arcade mean for the home? What it means is that there's going to be an insatiable demand for software in the home. This demand for software means that you can make your money on software instead of on hardware. It allows for something approaching more of what we call the razor and razor blade approach that is named after, of course, Gillette's practice of giving away the razor so that you buy the replacement blades. Atari itself did not use a true razor razor blades model. They maintained high margins on their hardware and on their software. But what you had going on in this time period is as video games became more popular, you had other types of stores feeling more comfortable stocking them. Video games were a department store product in the early days because only a department store was going to handle something that expensive. 
as video games spread, as Space Invaders takes off and they become a big thing, Atari is able to successfully push into discount houses, your Walmarts, your Kmarts, your lower-end department stores step down from Sears. Of course, the toy stores can't get enough of them. Toys R Us and other toy stores are really interested in it. These stores are willing to take some loss on the hardware to sell the software. So even though Atari is not lowering their price to retailers, the retailers start lowering their price and taking a smaller margin on the hardware in order to mass uh, sell software. The Razer and Razorblade model is developing, even though it's not always the manufacturers that are driving it. You have a spreading of home video games out of department stores into mass, other mass market retailers. You have software becoming the primary driver over hardware. You have hardware prices coming down, software prices coming up in order to create a new equilibrium for all of this. You have a real flourishing industry that basically just builds until it doesn't anymore. We've done three episodes on the crash, so I really am <laughs> going to spare us the big discussion on the crash. But suffice it to say, as the score chasing thing becomes more intense, you have to give them newer and more varied experiences faster and faster to keep them interested. So the amount of time that a game becomes a hit, stays a hit, becomes lower and lower. Arcade games are expensive. You're having to replenish your stock more often, which costs too much money. So you're starting to buy things on credit. Arcades are so popular that they're opening everywhere, everywhere. There's some places where you might have even multiple arcades at the same intersection, even in small towns. So you have a lot of new people coming in. They don't understand the business. They don't understand the economics. They're buying games on credit. They don't realize that these games are going to be no good in six months and three months. The whole arcade industry kind of screeches to a halt. Like in the middle of 1982, they just stop. So in the middle of 1982, arcade game sales just stop. That has the effect of trickling down, and it just wipes out the entire arcade industry. All of these guys that are overextended on credit, all of these arcades go out of business, and then you're in a death spiral because you can't sell as many units, so arcades go out of business, so you can't sell as many units, and arcades go out of business. That entire coin-op industry just collapses. The mass market's only going to stay for so long anyway. You draw them in with the Pac-Mans and the cutesy games that follow, but they're not necessarily going to stay for the long haul. It's a bit faddish on that side. And then the hardcore, you're having to get more and more intense with them and recycle product, cycle in new product more and more often to keep them interested, and it's just not sustainable. The home, of course, it's just a glut of software. The whole third-party thing starts. Atari misjudges the value of their programmers. Their programmers walk. They found their own companies. Once those early companies like Activision and Magic appear, it's kind of like opening Pandora's box. Other people that weren't necessarily thinking about it realize, oh, hey, we can do this too. We can reverse engineer the system and make our own games. And then one guy is like, I will reverse engineer the system and sell you what I've learned. And a bunch of companies buy from him. And there's just a ton of companies, too many companies, putting out too much product, and it all collapses. One of those products being Lost Luggage. Lost Luggage? <laughs> what if we took Kaboom and made it artistically much worse and the gameplay completely horrible? That will sell. No. No. No, it won't. <laughs> 
yeah, that's kind of phase one of the video game industry. And with that, we come to the end of part two of our look at the entire video game industry. We will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 